book, Wild at Heart, John Eldridge, I pulled it off the shelf the other day. I'd read it a long time ago, and, and I was reading one of the chapters in there, and it just struck me, uh, one of the, one of the uh, opening lines and paragraphs of the chapter that he was writing. thought it was very apropos to the current series that we're doing, so I want to share a little of that with you. It actually involves the uh, invasion of France at the end of World War II. The invasion of France at the end of World War II actually began the night before the Allies hit the beaches of Normandy when the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions were dropped in behind enemy lines to cut off Hitler's reinforcements. Now, if you've seen the movie The Longest Day or Saving Private Ryan, you remember the dangers that those paratroopers were facing. Alone or in small groups, they moved through the dead of the night across a country they had never been in order to fight this enemy that they couldn't see or predict. It was a moment of unparalleled bravery and cowardice. For not every trooper played the man that fateful night. Sure, they jumped, but afterward many hid. One group took cowardice to an absolutely new level. Too many had hunkered down in hedgerows to await the dawn, and a few had even gone to sleep. But Private Francis Palace of the 506th saw what was perhaps the worst dereliction of duty imaginable. He had gathered a squad near Vierville, hearing all kinds of noise and singing from a distance, he and his men sneaked up on a farmhouse, and in it was a mixed group from both American divisions. The paratroopers had found liquor in the cellar, and they were drunker than a bunch of hillbillies on a Saturday night wingding. Unbelievable. Unbelievable indeed. These men knew that they were at war, yet they refused to act like it. They lived in a dangerous denial, a denial that not only endangered them, but countless others who depended on them to do their part. John Eldridge continues, it's a perfect picture of the church in the West when it comes to spiritual warfare. And it's indicting. We Americans often act as if the war in the unseen spiritual realm is not really happening here, in our midst. Rather, we relegate that kind of stuff to third world countries. Or, possibly, when some sort of real cutting-edge ministry is going on. You see the folly of that thinking? What does that say about our ministries? What self-indicting words? We're under the enemy's deception that nothing dangerous is happening here. Are you under that deception? That nothing dangerous is happening here this morning? Nothing dangerous? See, if that's your pattern of thought, then you're defeated already. You swallow the devil's first line of attack which is, quote, I'm not here. Don't get fanatical about this stuff. I'm not here. There is no war. 
But you know that phrase, there is no war, is the subtle but pervasive lie sown by an enemy so familiar with us that we don't even see him anymore. The brilliant scholar, philosopher, and literary giant, C.S. Lewis, captures the heart of the enemy's ploy in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where he has the old devil instruct his apprentice in this very matter. He writes, My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Unquote. But the word of God has exposed him and blown his cover. But here's the problem, as I mentioned last time, in the last time we were together, and it bears repeating that you can't fight a battle that you don't think exists. You can't fight a battle that you don't think exists. The apostles Peter and Paul, however, bring to the forefront both this ageless battle that we face and the encouragement to us to stand strong in the fight. The Apostle Peter, who experienced this enemy firsthand, reminds us that we are to be on guard and alert. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, and I've repeated this verse a million times in this series, and I'll keep on drumming it into your heads until you know it. Be self-controlled and alert, Peter says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. You resist him standing firm in your faith because you know that your brother's throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For a struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Resist and stand Firm. Stand firm, then, verse 14 says, Therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. These are our spiritual weapons. And interestingly, all of them except for one are defensive. We're going to see that in a minute. What we're dealing with here is the biblical concept of spiritual warfare. And last time, we went through some of the various pieces of spiritual armor which Paul refers to as our arsenal, which equips us and enables us to wage this battle. 
I outlined them by asking a series of questions last week that we all must address. I want to review those questions. Number one is, am I sincere about dealing with this battle spiritually? Am I sincere about it? Paul talks about this supportive belt of attitude, this truthfulness, the belt of truth. The second question we looked at was, am I living a lifestyle that enables me to engage in this spiritual warfare? And Paul in verse 14 highlights the bulletproof vest of rectitude. In other words, righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. The third question we asked was, am I prepared to stand? Are you prepared to stand? Verse 15 says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we talked about the security that we have in that truth, in that gospel that saves us that it gives us stability and sure-footedness. And then the fourth question that we ended with last week was, am I able to defend myself against the enemy? And we talked about the shield of faith, this, this huge shield that we can stand our whole body behind. And that's our faith that wraps around us. And not only just us individually, but I also highlighted the fact that when a group comes together, when the Roman armies would come together and they would connect their shields together and form this impenetrable fortress that would move against the enemy. But as I promised last week, I want to take this the entirety of this message to deal with the next two items that are listed in this text of Ephesians 6. And those two items are found in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. I call them the headgear of hope and the switchblade of the Spirit. I want to highlight a bit of interesting grammar here, though, first in verse 17, which is why I wanted to take the time to, to, use the, to take these two items in this one message. Look at the word take there in verse 17. The word take, if you're using the same translation I am in, verse, in uh, the New American Standard, it's not the same word that is used in verses 13 and 16, which is also translated take. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. And then in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Well, interestingly enough, this word take in verse 17 really means to receive. It means to receive. It's a passive word. The previous items were usually, it's interesting if you think about what Paul is using as a metaphor here, that the previous items were usually laid out for the soldier to take up and put on himself. But the helmet and the sword normally would be handed to him by his armor bearer. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. You don't take it up necessarily. God gives it to you. You receive it. Salvation is a gift given by God. And the power of the word is also something received by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the helmet of, 
of salvation first. The headgear of hope in verse 17. This Roman soldier's helmet covered the entire sides of the face and the head. And it was usually made of bronze and leather and was virtually impenetrable. Since Paul is addressing Christians, this helmet doesn't refer to the act of becoming a believer, but rather the security of knowing that he who began a good work in you shall perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, this helmet of salvation, no matter how exhausting the battle gets, no matter how fatigued you become or the number of setbacks that you experience, you can fight in confidence knowing that the future consummation of your salvation is guaranteed. Is that right? And that guards your mind. Satan wants to mess with your mind. You believe that? He's going to try to knock off your helmet, which was the only way to make a Roman soldier vulnerable, to knock his helmet off. Satan wants to knock off your helmet and expose the most vulnerable area of your life. He wants to penetrate your thought life. He wants to break your focus on Jesus. He wants you to get you, he wants to get you to doubt your salvation, distract you from your objective, and discourage you from serving Christ. And he's going to do that through your thought life. John MacArthur points to the fact that a Roman soldier had to defend himself against a broadsword, Satan's broadsword. Roman soldier had to defend himself against the broadsword of Satan, which has two sides to it, discouragement and doubt. The two sides of the blade. He wants to skewer your mind with doubt and discouragement. You know how he'll do it? He'll say things like this. You sure are giving a lot and not getting much in return. You're circumscribing your life to a certain standard and setting yourself apart from the world. But what happens? You just lost your job. Some blessing. You've been reading your Bible every day, but your wife is as cranky as she was before you bought it. And it hasn't had any effect on her. And that could go the other way, by the way. Most often it does go the other way. This is what Satan does, right? Gets into your head. He says things like, what is God doing in your life? What is he doing in your life? You've been going to church for years, but look at your kids. They don't respect you today any more than they ever did. That'd discourage anybody, wouldn't it? You might have been teaching a class for a long time, yet wonder if anyone's ever getting anything out of it. That could discourage you. Satan wants to hit you in the head with doubt. How do you know you're a Christian, he says. How do you know you're a Christian? Are you sure you're saved? You certainly don't deserve to be a Christian. Look at what you just did. You think that's what a Christian does? Doesn't he mess with your mind like that? 
He's going to try to get into your head, into your mind. He's going to get you to doubt everything about the word of God that God says about who you are as a child of God, and that's plenty. Start looking at it. There's a lot there about who you are and who I am as a child of God that's encouraging, that's positive. But he's going to get you distracted from that. He will make you doubt it. He'll get you so discouraged and depressed about yourself that so spiritually tongue-tied that you can't even come back at him with anything. You won't even be able to remember a scripture that you memorized. Friends, here's a bit of advice that I discovered and the first time I read it, it revolutionized my thinking about how to deal with the devil. Make no agreements. Make no agreements. The enemy of your soul will suggest all sorts of things to you and about you because according to Jesus, he's out to steal and kill and destroy. Why is it that we never think that he is actually out to steal, kill, and destroy us? We think it's a verse in John chapter 10, but we don't think it's reality in our everyday life. He's out there. And that's his motive. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. Friends, make no agreements with him. Make no agreements with him. He'll tell you God doesn't care. That your heart is rotten to the core. And that you're not worth fighting for, much less dying for. And he'll suggest that Christ doesn't even know you exist. Therefore, you're on your own. He'll make you hate yourself, cut yourself, drug yourself, and ultimately want to kill yourself. That's what he's after. And during spiritual assaults like that, you need to apply the helmet of salvation and make no agreements. Make no agreements. Don't, don't give in to the stuff that he's saying. As a child of God, you know better than that, don't you? You know who you are and what you have believed. And you have the scriptures, this God-breathed word to back you up on it. Jesus called Satan the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. His first attack on the human race was the perpetration of a lie, and he is master at it. He plants a suggestion in your mind, seeking to get you to agree to it. You sin, and you do a bad thing. And you know what he says to you? See that? You did a bad thing. And you can agree to that. But you should, at that point, confess it, repent of it, and get back on track with God, right? But no, Satan says, see that? You did a bad thing. Because you're a bad person. And you know what we do? We make an agreement with him. We say, yeah, you're right, I am bad. And then he just takes that foothold and that ground and he builds a beachhead. And he starts attacking every little thing about you. And before you know it, you don't even know if you're a Christian anymore. One writer suggests the whole plan is based on agreements. When we make those agreements with the demonic forces suggesting things to us, we come under their influence and it becomes kind of a permission that we give to them. Make no agreements. 
Instead, recognize what the scripture says to do. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen? That's what we need to do. Craig Rochelle in his book, The Christian Atheist, writes, Many believe a common lie. A lie believed as truth will affect you as if it were true. You follow that? A lie believes, believed as truth will affect you as it were truth. I have a friend, he says, let's call him Jeremy, who's addicted in no particular order to alcohol, porn, sleeping with girls, and smoking pot. Although Jeremy has been a Christian since he was 15 years old, his life certainly isn't moving forward. Each week, Jeremy faithfully sits on the fourth row at church, convinced that he can never overcome his addictions. In his mind, this makes him unworthy of God's love. See what's happening here? Jeremy doesn't believe that he'll ever change. I know God can change Jeremy. Craig says, but it won't happen as long as he believes it won't. Jeremy lives inside an invisible fence. He says, I have another friend, Robert, whose dog Sadie kept running away. Robert installed a wire underground that would trigger a small shock in Sadie's collar. Seen those invisible fences? Every time she'd approach. It took several escape attempts to train her, but now Sadie lives within her invisible rectangle, and it's like a little doggy Bermuda Triangle of sorts, he says, in the yard. And Sadie can never escape it. That was years ago, he said. And Sadie no longer wears her shock collar anymore. But she's so well-conditioned that to this day, she avoids the edge of her yard and that property line. In that dog's mind, there is still a barrier there, even though none exists, because without the collar, there's no shock. Jeremy, he says, like other Christian atheists who've tried to change and failed, wrongly believes that God simply can't change him. Wrong. Keep your helmet intact, the helmet of salvation. The truth about our salvation is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Is that right? That's what's true. You need to fight those thoughts that say you can't change, that you're stuck in this addiction for the rest of your life until you go to be with Jesus. You can change. You're a new creature. You can walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Make no agreements with the enemy. Fight them tooth and nail with the weapons Christ has given you. And they're not weapons forged here on earth either. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's what we fight with and how we fight. 
Now, while Paul may have been applying these words to the destructive uh, philosophical arguments of false teachings that were going on, to those who oppose his gospel, we can easily apply this principle to our own response to Satan's arguments and accusations against what God says is true about us in the scripture as new creations in Christ. So keep your helmet intact. Keep it intact. Let Christ control your thought life. The helmet of salvation is clearly a weapon of defense. It gives us clarity of mind, confidence to continue, and it concentrates our hope. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 for a minute and look at verses 6 through 8. Very familiar verses. Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But notice verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, what's it say? Dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Keep your helmet intact. This is God's leash law for your mind. Right? It's God's leash law for your mind. Put your mind on a leash. Dwell on the things of God. And don't, let's, don't make agreements with Satan and let him take you down those roads of destruction. You know what you believe? Do you know what those points of truth are in your faith that you can stand firm and resist the devil on? I want to do something with you this morning. Something that we don't do very often in this church, but I used to do a lot when I was growing up in the church tradition that I was in. I want you to look at the screen behind me and I want you to recite with me the Apostles' Creed. I don't know how many of you know this by heart. Anybody? Very few. I knew this when I was like six years old. The church trained us in this. And I want to train you right now. So I want you to repeat with me what we believe. You could stand, actually. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that prayer,
and you're freaking out a little bit about that, that line that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what that means is you believe in the community, the church gathered, the church community. That's what Catholic means, the common unity. It's not talking about a denomination in this prayer. The next question I want to address, I think that Paul really gets us to think about here in this text is this. Have I learned the art of street warfare? Have I learned the art of street warfare? Paul in Ephesians 6 and verse 17 says not only to take the helmet of salvation or receive the helmet of salvation, but he also says receive the sword of the Spirit. What I think Paul is referring to here, in fact, what I know he's referring to is not the broadsword. The broadsword was a different word in the scripture. And interestingly enough, it's used of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation about three or four different times. That sword, that double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth and destroys everything in its path. This is the sword that's talking about. But what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 6, as a matter of fact, the only offensive weapon on the list is a double-edged cut-and-thrust sword, which was the primary tool of hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Roman soldiers. It was always ready and available for both defense and attack. And as I say, there's two different swords in this scripture. The one I talked about, the broad sword that came out of Jesus' mouth, and then there's the short dagger the cut-and-thrust dagger that the, that the Roman soldier used. And the best illustration that I can use to give, to, to give you the, the kind of picture of that is a switchblade. I call it the switchblade of the spirit. In a street fight, the switchblade is accurate and it's deadly if you know how to use it. Now, friends, when it comes down to daily life, we encounter the enemy not only on the fields of battle, but on the streets, on the streets. We encounter the enemy on the streets. Let me ask you a question. Are you an accomplished street fighter? Are you? Spiritually speaking. Paul describes this weapon, this switchblade, as being of the spirit. Notice that. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, it's designed and it's given by the Spirit, not man. It's the Word of God it's identified as. Literally, Paul is referring here to the spoken Word of God. This weapon is powerful in battle and can disarm and dismember the enemy very quickly. It's sharp, it cuts deep, and it's sure. As my father-in-law used to say before he died, Constantly, the word divides. The word divides. It does. It divides. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The writer of Hebrews uses the same word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 6 when he says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the switchblade word. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Our only offensive weapon is sadly the one most neglected by the church. You know, the church is often a weakened warrior because it is merely a weekend warrior. Sad, but I think it's true. We don't know how to effectively fight the good fight because we're never personally engaged in the war. We only get together once a week and we practice on each other. Isn't that right? And frankly, pardon the pun, it just doesn't cut it. It doesn't. Do you know how to use your switchblade? You know how to use it? If I were to ask how many of you could quote me five, just five verses of Scripture that have to do with the deity of Christ, could you do it? Would you be able to do it? Could I call you up here to do it? How about the doctrine of the Trinity? You can drive down Western Avenue on the way to Augusta and there's a church sign out there that constantly is, is posting things on there saying that the Trinity is not in the Bible, that the Trinity does not exist, that there's no such thing as three persons in one God. Do you know how to defend the Trinity? Could you knock on that church's door and say, I beg to differ. Open your Bible and use your switchblade? Could you do it? How many of you could adequately explain what the Bible has to say about sex before marriage and point to scriptures? Or where to find those scriptures? Would I be picking on you if I asked you to come up here and do that? Would it be embarrassing? Let me tell you this. The enemy is going to do much worse than that if he catches us with a Bible that's closed. Or a dull blade, so to speak. The only thing that a dull blade is good for or a closed Bible is good for is whacking people on the head, but it's not going to pierce their soul, right? It will not pierce their soul. Listen, my job is to make sure that you are equipped for the battle, but I cannot fight it for you. I can't fight it for you. And I dare say that if you've been here for any length of time, and you have taken notes for every scripture that I've put on the screen behind me, and every scripture that I have quoted in the sermons that I've preached here, you would have a pretty good-sized volume. You should be equipped by now. But I can't fight the battle for you. No one can. A street fighter knows how to use his knife. You must fight the battle. The problem with us is that we're not on the street where we should be most of the time. Instead, we sit in our churches, small groups, polishing our best silver butter knives while the sword of the Spirit remains dull, sheathed, and tucked in the back of our closets. The late cult researcher Walter Martin once said that the tragedy of Christianity is that a 90-day wonder from the Jehovah Witnesses can take apart a Christian in 30 minutes for the most part. They'll shred us to pieces because they're constantly out on the streets. Face it, most Christians don't know the word like they should. They can't defend themselves or counterattack. Folks, in this war, we're all on a need-to-know basis. We need to know God's word. And we need to use it. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Very, very poignant verse. And it's not just for pastors. It's for every Christian. Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And you know what that means? If you were to literally look at what that actually says and refers to in the original language, accurately handling the word of truth, literally it says accurately cutting straight. And it refers to that precision and that fine detail and accurate cutting as if a diamond cutter were doing the cutting. You know how precise that has to be. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, cutting straight the word of truth. It's the spoken word that advances the kingdom. Studying your Bible is just not the end of it. You have to use it because you own a Bible doesn't mean it's going to protect you. You can own a hundred Bibles, but they won't help you if you don't know how to use them. The sword of the Spirit must be sharp in your hand as you wield it. Face it, we just don't put in the effort for the most part, do we? It takes time and we don't have time to invest. But you and I can't afford not to invest in it if you give yourself to your work, what's going to happen? You're going to be good at your work, aren't you? If you give yourself to your spouse and to your children, you're going to be light years ahead on the family scale, right? But if you don't invest in your faith, guess who's going to break in and steal it, kill it, and destroy it? Who do you think? Satan and his hosts. The spoken word is our greatest offense against the enemy. It shreds the enemy to pieces. How will you overcome him? Speak the scripture. We went through this in the very first message, right? Jesus' temptation in the desert. Mark chapter 4, verses 4 and on down. In verse 7 and verse 10. It is written, it is written, it is written. And he quoted scriptures. And then it says at the end, the devil left him. And angels came and began to minister him. Listen, if the word of God and quoting scripture was good enough for Jesus, don't you think it's good enough for us? When you're dealing with doubt and discouragement, draw your sword, bear the blade, speak the scripture. People might think you're nuts, but the devil will think you're very serious. And who knows, you may turn the hearts of those around you who hear you toward Christ, right? Because Romans 10, 17 says very clearly that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, I'm not just, I'm not talking about walking down the street and shouting at the devil's scriptures. People think you're nuts and they'll put you in the loony bin. I've seen people doing stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing this word well enough that when Satan attacks you and you have and you just are not getting any victory over him, that you speak the word of God to him. It is written. You really think that Jesus didn't do it in the desert? And do we get a picture of what that's like? Jesus face down in the dirt, being tempted by the devil, and him quoting scripture to the devil? 
it happened. There's one more piece of protection that we have in this text. And it's not visible, but it renders us invincible. And we're going to deal with that next week as we answer the last question. Do I know how to prevail in the warfare? How do you prevail in the warfare? Anybody know? It's in verse 18. Prayer. And we're going to spend next week talking about that tool. I want you to do something right now. I want you to close your eyes. We did kind of something similar last week when I asked you to turn your palms upward. And as I prayed, I asked you to respond with amens as if you were receiving the armor from God. I want to pray right now for all of us. And you can respond with amen if you, if you so choose. But I want you to make these words your prayer. And use them. Use the outline of them every day when you enter your daily routine. Pray something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for granting to me every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. I receive those blessings into my life today and I ask the Holy Spirit to bring all those blessings into my life this day. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Wash me once more with his blood from every sin and stain and evil device. I have put on your armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation. I take up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and I wield these weapons against the evil one in the power of God. And I choose to pray at all times in the spirit to be strong in you, Lord, and in your might. Father, thank you for your angels. I ask you to summon them in the authority of Jesus Christ and release them to war for me and my household. May they guard me all the times of this day. Thank you for those who pray for me. I confess I need their prayers. And I ask you to send forth your spirit and rouse them, unite them, raising up the full canopy of prayer and intercession for me. I call forth the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ this day throughout my home, my family, my life, and my domain. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ with all glory and honor and thanks to him. Let me close with this thought. In the second film of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers, there is a king who is reluctant to go to war. Theoden, Lord of the horse warriors of Rohan, is fearful and he is timid. An army is marching through his lands, an army bred for a single purpose to destroy the world of men. Sounds like Satan, doesn't it? 
Villages fall, women and children are slain, still Theoden balks. I will not risk open war, he says. Open war is upon you, says Aragorn, whether you would risk it or not. As you watch this scene, you can't help but think of the church. You can't help but think of the church. Most people don't know the freedom and the life Christ promised to them. And they won't fight for it. Or they've been told not to fight for it. Friends, we are now in the midst of an epic battle, spiritually speaking. It's brutal. And it's a vicious war against an enemy who knows his time is very, very short. Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the truth that Jesus is Lord. He is the name above all names. And it's at his name that we bow. Amen.